Hello everyone, welcome to another episode of The Pop Doctrine. My name is Tom Cockrum, I'll be your host now and forever. And I am very lucky today to be joined by another guest in my little lo-fi studio. I have Tim Clifford for me of the... Uh, the WA Greens party. Um, I'll just introduce him and then we'll, uh, we'll go through some questions and hopefully have a, a good chat together. So, uh, Tim has been a member of the party since, uh, well, he's been an elected member of the party since 2017 and he's seeking re-election in the rapidly approaching March 13 state election and he represents the East Metro region. Is there anything I've missed Tim? No, that's pretty much covers it. <laughs> How are you doing today? Uh, I'm pretty good. Uh, you know, it's uh, campaigns are never predictable, and <laughs> yeah. you have a lot of you know, like today. You know, who would have thought today the Liberals would announce a net zero emissions target? Which yes. I, I guess we might chat about, but um, very much so. Yeah. But uh, yeah, it, it, it changes rapidly, and campaigns are never easy, and they have in one day inspiring. Um, empowering all those kinds of things roll into one yep. and and also a lot of stress involved but uh, ultimately um, at the end of the day it's a really good part of our whole process our democracy yeah so. <laughs> yes no we can't, we're at the pointy end now and yeah. the first question I was planning to ask you is how you think the recent COVID restrictions have kind of impacted on campaigning but we've got something even hotter to talk about in terms of uh, recent developments we've got the the WA Liberals uh, net zero emissions target for is it 2030 yeah 2030 yeah. so I'm going to ask you to talk about this at length in a second, but just to give everyone some background, I've got um, two articles I'm going to read on. One of them um, details the WA Greens uh, net zero plan that was, was that unveiled late 2020? Yeah, 20, uh, early December it might have been. Yeah, yes. Okay. One of the first, first or second week of December. Yeah. Okay, cool. So just to give you some background on that and then we'll kind of compare it to what the Liberals have announced today. I'm just going to read from a WA Today article by, Peter de Krujf? Uh, Croft. Croft, okay, I think. cool. Uh, that was from back in December when this happened called Greens Unveil Climate Change Plan. Sorry, Greens Unveil Climate Change Attack Plan to Cut Through McGowan's Popularity and Save Seats. So, two funds worth $750 million a year for building renewable energy infrastructure and supporting clean manufacturing are at the center of a climate change policy the Greens WA hope will stop annihilation at the state election in March. The party, which holds four seats in the upper house at WA Parliament, is proposing to pay for the bulk of its climate policies by ending fossil fuel subsidies from the state government, which it claims were worth about $875 million uh, in the 2018 to 19 year. Uh, the Greens WA want a 100% renewable energy target by 2030 for the state and net em sorry, net zero emissions by 2035. A commitment to a 100% renewable energy target by 2030 has carried over from the last election, with the Greens also wanting net zero emissions by 2035 and both aims to be legislated. The Greens say 10,000 jobs would be created each year through a $500 million state renewables investment fund, which would go to projects contributing to the renewable energy transition. A separate $2.5 billion fund to be spread out over a decade would support sectors like green steel and hydrogen and generate 55,000 new jobs, according to the climate policy. The policy is Sorry, the party is also proposing gas and coal be phased out of WA, but the costings behind the green policy will not be released until a later date. So could you tell us a little bit more about your involvement in these plans and then maybe we can flesh them out a bit more and relate them to today's 
events? Yeah, um, well, yeah, as, as you put it in the WA uh, Today article and uh, quite dramatic there, yeah. uh, <laughs> facing an Irish. But I'll show you, we put forward the policy, um, we've always, <clears throat> obviously the party's been around for 30 years, we've always, we're a science-based party and the way that we put the policies forward, uh, we look at other jurisdictions across the world, we look at what's working, uh, where, you know, pretty much how do we get to a point where we can get to net zero emissions as quickly as possible to avoid the worst impacts of climate change and also at the same time not leave anyone behind um, and it's not just like I hear a lot of uh, campaign sloganeering um, around these sort of transitions and the way that they're put forward and everything but at the end of the day um, if we don't do anything then the impacts will be worse it will cost us more in the long run and ultimately at the end, well at the end of the day like um, WA will be left out in the cold and we won't be able to take advantage of the transition at the same time yeah okay well so this was back in december and maybe let's also have a look at what happened today and kind of compare the different approaches that have been taken so uh let me just find the article i was looking at so this one is from uh the australian financial review and uh, published this morning, WA Liberal Party promises to shut down coal power stations by 2025. And I'll just read a little bit from this, but maybe not quite as much. So state Liberal leader Zach Kirkup unveiled one of the greenest energy plans put forward by a major political party anywhere in the country with hydrogen at its centrepiece. The WA Liberal Party... Part, oh, sorry, the WA Liberal plan includes shutting the state-owned Mucha and Collie coal-fired power stations within four years, and under the plan, which Mr. Kirkup likened in scale to the Northwest Shelf Oil and Gas Project, the private sector would invest nine billion dollars to produce and export two hundred fifty thousand tons a year of green hydrogen from a port near Geraldton on the Midwest coast. So. I guess I have a question about what green hydrogen is as well, because um, but maybe what do you think the main differences are here? Uh, well, the main differences are um, the policy that we put forward is a statewide policy, and it takes into account transitioning away from uh, what the state Labor government's been advocating for since um, I got into Parliament, and that has been expanding the gas industry into, off the northwest shelf, potentially um, uh, with the uh, with the bar hub. Uh, the Browse, the major Browse project, uh, which is a joint venture between Chevron, Woodside, BP and Shell. Uh, that project will go to the year 2070. So those are the sort of projects that the policy that we put forward last year would, fa would steer the, the state away from. Uh, and also at the same time encompass what's in the Liberal policy, which is pretty much government owned assets. Uh, the net zero emission target only applies to uh, energy grid um, and things like uh, um, uh, fleet vehicles okay. that would go electric um, and also keeping Synergy, which is our retailer, in state hands, but also to provide assurances for the um, those companies, they're talking about the private companies, they would have a customer base that they could go, okay, we've already got the customers, so you can tap into this and we, you can sell your energy and, and so forth. So the different, two differences, the differences are um, we will be dealing with the fossil fuel companies as well at the same time 
time. Yes. Um, whereas the Liberals approach is just, okay, we'll just let fracking go ahead and we'll <laughs> let um, the projects off the Northwest shelf go ahead and gas will play a pivotal role in the transition. Yeah. As David Honey, who um, is the energy, shadow energy spokesperson said today, that uh, gas is uh, going to be um, uh, part of the mix in our transition and it's going to be a focus as well. So. Mm, okay. So I guess we could say the Greens policy is more expansive. Yes. Also, I guess, has more of a long-term plan in mind in terms of the costing. Yeah, absolutely. I think um, if you look at uh, what our commitments are in Australia to the Paris Agreement um, and so forth, uh, if we're, the idea is Western Australia uh, should not be authorising or supporting um, massive um, gas projects when we are facing, you know, the worst impacts of climate change. And last week we went through um, what the deputy fire chief said was um, intense uh, an intensified um, uh, fire that broke out up in the hills. Um, uh, and the intensity of it was just exaggerated, exasperated by the fact that climate change has been affecting us and we need to do something about it. So that costs the state money. The water that we've run out of in Denmark or running out of that we're cutting into costs the state millions of dollars. The uh, farmers who are impacted by climate change is costing the state millions of dollars. Yeah. So there's so many different things that climate change impact that we need to address. And um, us allowing the gas industry to do what they want is something we shouldn't be doing. Yes. yes. <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, yeah, it's a little right way, but... <laughs> no, no, that's all good. Um, so I have a question about kind of the political implications of this. But first, as I said, what is green hydrogen and green steel? What do we mean by that? So... Um, when we look at uh, hydrogen being produced, like, for example, there's a massive project in the northwest that's been proposed and it's being authorised, the Asian Renewable Energy Hub, okay. um, which is 20 plus billion. Sorry, I don't know the exact number. Yeah, but, no, but it's in the billions and we're planning to, the initial um, concept of the project is to export renewable energy into Southeast Asia, mm -hmm. but also use the renewable energy to produce hydrogen from. Yeah. And so that's renewable hydrogen. Okay. Um, what blue hydrogen is, or not green hydrogen, uh, blue hydrogen is hydrogen that's produced through using gas um, as, energy, as an energy source to produce the hydrogen. So they're the two, differences and what the Liberal Party didn't commit to today was um, saying ruling out gas is something that we're not going to use in producing our hydrogen and then you know we might export it but at the end of the day we're still burning gas to produce it so yes. that's the difference. Okay and green steel? And green steel would be uh, with our policy we would look at um, producing we've you know we've got massive iron ore deposits here in yep. WA and I, there is a, is a space for us to be producing steel in WA using renewable hydrogen as opposed to uh, as opposed to blue hydrogen. Okay, yeah. all right. Well, so that's something, and, and even the Liberals alluded to um, manufacturing in their policy, which I think is uh, a great step forward. It's just where we get our energy from. Yes, well, speaking of the step forward, we off mic we were having a bit of a chat about kind of the, the implications of this in the lead up to the election, uh, how it's quite a surprise from the Liberal Party to some degree. Uh, what do you think the, uh, the fallout or the effect of this uh, announcement will be? Well, I think uh, it's very, it's put the Labor Party on notice. Mm. And un it's been unfortunate because we put forward a bill last year, which I think you alluded to before. I read in the week before the COVID shutdown in WA, yeah. we had a campaign planned and we had a lot, we worked across the, across all different 
different groups to put this bill in front of them and uh, I was really proud of a process that we went through to um, put together a climate change bill that are in introduced into parliament in early 2020 yeah. um, and pretty much at the scope of that bill was net zero emissions by the year 2040 which I know is different to our um, campaign yeah. um, target but also still 100% renewable by the um, year 2030 yeah. and then we would also have a climate change division within government and a minister for climate change we're seeing that it's one of our greatest challenges of all time yeah. and uh, so that bill was put into parliament and it was I, I tried to introduce it as apolitical as possible yeah. it wasn't about you know um, having the stone throwing debate yes. but um, the Labour Party opposed it and in fact when we had the um, debate in November they pretty much said you need to bring the community with you but I think regardless <laughs> of whether you're a Green supporter Labour Liberal National there is a sentiment within the community that is we need to have a policy to deal yeah. with it and so for the Labour Party not to have a strong climate policy or at least the net zero emissions target legislated like the Liberal Party are proposing um, I think is uh, in a way it's embar embarrassing yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, to be blunt um, like you imagine um, in 20 2017 when I was elected there was I had so many people go you, you, you're going to be shocked at the amount of policy we're going to see around renewable energy and climate change from the Labor Party, but they haven't introduced it. And that's not, um, that's not something to say political. It's just a fact. Yeah, you know? yeah. And um, so there has been a disappointment in the community um, with that. So for the Liberal Party to introduce some way to going in some direction or at least have their policy um, has really put the, I think, the, put them on notice. Yeah, I mean, well, we were talking, hopefully it could push the Labor Party to adopt an even more progressive position yep. um, and I guess maybe meet somewhere in the middle. I doubt, yeah. I, I guess they're going to maybe get as far as some of the stuff you've, you're aiming for, but yeah. hopefully they can edge a bit more in that direction as well. <laughs> yeah, well, one thing... Um, um, I should say, um, back in early 2019, uh, the Environmental Protection Authority, the EPA, um, put forward what they thought was a reasonable plan to hold the gas industry to account. I learned a lot about politics <laughs> in those weeks. And that was... Um, and you hear it a lot about the influence of different industries over governments and everything. But when um, an apolitical organisation like our Environmental Protection Authority puts forward a requirement that industries or companies like Woodside and Chevron offset their emissions, for example, um, get met with a backlash from the sitting government. Yes. Um, but and then too political. Yeah, yeah. To, yeah <laughs> pushes them and say, we're not going to destroy jobs. And, yeah where it's actually the opposite. Um, yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, so for that to happen, I thought, wow, like this is something that um, is very disappointing to a lot of people and unfair on, yeah. to a lot of people who have worked their butts off to get some sort of policy in place. Um, and these aren't creenies. These aren't like people who, um, <laughs> who are like just progress. These are people who are going, okay, what do we need to address climate change? Yeah. And they've put a bill forward and unfortunately industry and the Labor Party um, teamed up and it's been reported on. They met with Woodsides and the Chevrons and yeah. they said, go back to the drawing board and come back with something that was watered down and um, in effect allowed the, those fossil fuel companies to do what the hell they want. So disappointing. Yes. <laughs> okay. Well, I think that that's brought us up to speed on uh, the most recent developments and um, maybe we'll check back in in the coming days or weeks and see if there's anything to add to that. Um, 
we'll go to my next question, which was I thought going to be the the hot goss, like uh, this is happening now question, which is about the recent COVID restrictions in WA. Um, so a week of lockdown and now hopefully uh, going back to phase four as of Sunday, but I guess we'll see if that's to be confirmed or not. Um, what effect has have the recent COVID restrictions had on your campaigning? Uh, well, <laughs> we, I was door knocking on the Sunday um, that the announcement was made to shut everything down. And we literally finished up a door knock. And mind you, I did actually notice when we door knock, we're very, or well, as any campaign goes, very mindful and very like very respectful of people's private space so obviously you go into people's doorsteps and you speak to people and there is still an anxiety when they see what's going on in the world like with covid and how it's affected different communities and also um people just want to feel safe and so when we got when all of the volunteers came back to the park um and then we were we were around the someone's phone listening to the announcement um we had a series of different events we wanted to do that week was voter contact phone banking um door knocking and all the things you do in a campaign that we just had to put on the back burner so what has been disruptive to be honest it has has been a real uh uh, we've actually read like we've reset ourselves and I think we're in a pretty good space but like it has been a bit of a delay on, on a lot of things yeah. do you find that with like sort of um, supporters of the Greens party there's a good online presence with maybe younger people is it easy to kind of breach the gap a bit more than maybe a more conservatively inclined party yeah I think so I think um, I think online campaigning has become the just the center point for for campaigning for a lot of parties yeah but we've but you know the thing that's really i've really enjoyed with this um in with what we've done as a party as you said a lot of young people online i've learned a lot more about using different instagram tools and and different like zoom tools and all these kinds of things um to the point where i I, you know i look at a zoom meeting and go okay which was a bit of a novelty before actually um but uh having people that work in that space like you've got tiktok and you've got all these kinds of things and i don't want to be the embarrassing politician on tiktok um but i do recognize that to communicate important issues you do need to be able to utilize some of these tools and i think it's become a very pivotal crucial point of campaigning yeah no it's yeah i've I've had to go through a similar learning curve with setting this up and getting on twitter but um yeah like with teaching i guess zoom has it's yeah it's uh it's a weird thing it does it makes it so you can do the thing but it it doesn't feel as uh as real anymore well also going back to the covid restrictions last year and everything i found that and I put it out there to people. I said, you know, if it's difficult for anyone who gets locked down in their apartment or gets locked down in their home who don't, who might live by themselves to go through a stage of where, okay, I'm in my apartment 24-7 and I can't talk to anyone, I put it out there to people. I said, just drop us a message. And the yeah. amount of people I've been able to communicate with and and talk things through and find common ground with just through these mediums has just been amazing. So I think it does come with its dangers and drawbacks, but I think overall, I think it has been a pretty positive part of the COVID that has been terrible. Don't get me wrong, but but just the fact that it's brought people more together online, I think has been a good thing.
Cool. So we'll talk a bit more about the election soon. But uh, for my listeners and for myself, I think we'd like to learn a little bit more about you, Tim. So can you tell us about your background before politics? Yeah, it's been a bit of a journey. Um, I grew up in Albany, uh, in you know, obviously Albany, in the southwest of Western Australia, and I grew up in um, well a single parent family. Uh, my dad was immigrated from Ireland in the 1970s, and um, Irish guy. He's a uh, laboured his whole life. Uh, you know, he was always a guy that worked in the mining industry, and we wouldn't see him much when I was growing up. Uh, my mum worked in bars and she was a bar manager. She worked in clubs, you know, uh, in Albany and she would um, work. So she was part time, you know, and I had three sisters as well. And we lived in state housing and we jumped between state housing and private rentals and all those kinds of things. And I think because of the, some of the, um, my mum also probably didn't, she didn't grow up in a, such a great situation. So I think some of, you know, sometimes these cycles repeat. Um, and so something, sometimes things were pretty difficult uh, for, you know, growing up in a situation like that, because you, the, ma- the main thing I can take from it is, um, you know, it's harder to find direction where you have not much stability. And growing up in that situation, there wasn't much stability to sort of look forward to. Whereas I had friends who their parents might say to them, okay, so once you get to the end of, you should do these units at school. And then at the end of it, you do your TE at the time it's TE. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, and then you'll go to uni or you'd move to Perth and, and you could study and you can be whatever you want to be or whatever. Like, and for me, it was pretty much, um, just work. And if I, you know, if I worked and stayed in Albany and I had a family and I bought a house, which is a lot of people do that. And, you know, and it, you know, life is what it is and you find what works for yeah, you. Yeah. But like, I, I thought when I got to the end of school, not knowing what I wanted to do, I, like, I was a bit, I was like, I was a bit out there. I just didn't know, should I move to Perth? Should I, Still, because I at school I worked in Woolworths and I was working part time while I was at um, um, going to school. Um, at the end of school, I ended up working. I was a brickies labourer. I worked in an abattoir, yeah. which was really shit. Yeah, um, I can imagine. Yeah. And um, <laughs> I don't recommend it. Uh, but you know, it was a it, that was a learning. You know, and I think what I might do is I might actually talk about how through like growing up, how I had a couple of light bulb moments. Yes, and the working the abattoir was a real light bulb moment for me um i was working on night shift Mm. and actually i was in this induction and there were all these guys in this induction and um at the end of the induction uh i expected to work on night on day shift sorry and on day shift you could go to work and you could come home and you go to bed early or whatever but uh out of the out of this whole group of people 20 or 30 people they pulled me and two other people out and said you're on night shift and you're going to be on the slaughter floor and I'm like, oh my God. Uh, which is uh, <laughs> quite an experience and uh, so I ended up on the slaughter floor in an, um, in an abattoir Fletcher's um, close to Albany and I was working night shift and a lot of those people and this is when I was 18 or 19 a lot of those people who worked on night shift a lot of immigrants who had fled violence in their own country some of them um, prior it was I think it was prior to September 11 yeah. um, like they were from um, Afghanistan Iraq uh, all you know and so I'd sit there and I'd just chat to people and I'd talk about some of them were doctors some of yeah. them were lawyers and they were 
coming over to know to escaping uh, persecution but you know they were working towards a better life in australia this reminded me of my, my dad's story he you know came across when he was younger and um so that opportunity was there and once you put a face to people that you only read about i think it's an important lesson in life you get to put yourself in their shoes yeah and you, you can never say that you can go, my life experience is equal to theirs because it's obviously can't, but you can get some sort of insight. Yeah, you can empathize. Empathize. And so I was doing that and uh, I left that job. I got, I, I ended up joining the Army Reserve. I actually oh, applied yeah. to join the Army yep. when I was 17. Wow. I, yeah, was, yeah. I was knocked back. Yeah. Uh, and Why? Then, you're well, a tall, tall, strong young man. <laughs> Uh, when I actually, I took it really hard because like I didn't, you know, going back to not having any direction in high school or, um, I thought the army would solve a lot of my, um, insecurities. It would be like, okay, I've got some sort of safety net around me that I can sort of rely upon and, and someone telling me what to do. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so they knocked me back because they said, I was too young and inexperienced and in hindsight I was but at the time I thought what the hell are you talking about so I ended up joining the reserves and I joined the reserves uh, throughout when I worked at the abattoir and and I did that my idea was to work uh, to join the army full time through the reserves Uh, I ended up using some of the money from my training in the reserves before I went full time and I went to Island to see where oh, my yeah, dad nice. grew up. So yeah. in the, this would have been 2001, yeah. 2002, 2002, I think. And um, so I ended up going away. Uh, I came back and sadly a friend of mine who I was best friends with in high school or in primary school into early high school, he joined um, the army and he was in the infantry like I joined. I tried to join being a soldier yeah. and he, um, he committed suicide. So... That experience, for me, I had to really assess whether I wanted to join the organization that my friend, like it was pretty devastating. Yeah. Not that we were still close friends, but to see the impact that had on his family. So I decided not to do that. And um, at that time, instead of staying in, um, joining the army full time or going back to Albany after flying back from being overseas, I stayed in Perth Okay. Yeah. and landed a job in construction yeah. through a work agency, uh, work pack in Leadable. Nice. <laughs> um, and funny enough, uh, my first job through that agency was just around the corner from my office in Midland right now. Okay. And, wow, uh, yeah, so yeah, civil construction, working on subdivisions, I also was doing plastic welding, machine operating, on the shovel, yeah. uh, concreting, yeah. uh, jack of all trades sort of thing. Um, <laughs> and at the same time, uh, so I, I worked a lot of my, between 2001 to 2005 I, in that space until the mining boom hit. And then I worked away uh, as a FIFO worker. We'll bring that back now, I guess, to your political uh, aspirations and well, aspirations that have been successful but how did you go from that to what you're doing now so um i worked away on a site called the ravenslaw nickel project and the ravenslaw nickel project was huge it was something that was um in the southwest and it provided a lot of employment and opportunities and it was a bhp site and i worked on that project and um I already knew I had my issues with the company I worked with. So I, my, my thought process was around fairness yes. okay. and we would go to job sites and the company wouldn't tell us that we were, 
that we had certain um, allowances on the job site. So they just wouldn't tell us. So we, we would not get in our pay packet. And then you'd have to find out from the engineer for, who you're contracting off, actually, why aren't you getting paid that? Actually, oh. they're trying to rip you off. Yeah, yeah. So as a worker, getting ripped off by my company was a real problem. Um, didn't sit well with me. And when I saw that happening, um, I quit mm. initially this is just before I went away to work yeah saying if this but anyway my boss who I worked for in the company was really good and he went to the Ravensthorpe uh, nickel project and he said um, I went through a bit of a breakup as you do with your girlfriend yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I thought I have to get away from Perth and so I ended up in the Ravensthorpe nickel project and I worked there for like two years and BHP when the nickel price started to go down towards the GFC in 2008, they uh, lied to the workers and they said that there's been a safe, like they used a small safety incident to shut down the whole site to prepare for actually sacking a lot of people on site. Didn't tell anyone. I had friends that bought property in the local area that when the properties were yeah. pretty high and uh, they made us do all these safety exercises for two weeks and flew in security, like a number of security on, on, on their planes. And uh, one morning they brought all the workers in and they sacked everyone. BHP contractors, everyone went like, it was over a thousand people in this. And you could hear the audible sigh, people going, I've just bought a property in the local mm-hmm. area. Yeah. They were lied to. And so I was going, this is effed. Yeah. I, I, I literally, and I bought a property in Queensland as well. Um, because everyone's saying buy a house during the boom, buy a house. Um, didn't work out well for me. Uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> negative equity and all those kinds of things that come. And then from then I had to jump from company to company as a contractor, stressing about a mortgage. Yeah. Um, and then I really thought, what, uh, what is the point of what I'm doing with my life? Working away for four weeks on, one week off, six weeks on, one week off. And during that time, I ended up on the Ravens, on the sorry, the Barrow, the Gorgon project off the massive gas, gas project yep. um, through the contract I was working for. Uh, so my plan was to go back to. I thought I'm going to just go to uni as a mature age student. My boss encouraged me of a mentorship matters, I think, and guidance through people that you meet in your life. Yep. And he said, you know, I think you should take the opportunity and go to uni if you can that's what you want to do don't get stuck out on these sites because you'll be doing this for the next 20 years and you'll just kill yourself doing it um so my plan was to do that but i couldn't because of i was trying to sell my property you know and so i was going through this pretty rough patch but at the same time i was on the gorgon project so on one side i'd learned fairness around having really bad bosses who my previous company donated to the liberal party <laughs> just just for your information yeah, yeah. um and then also working on the gorgon project I, I was like why the hell are they putting a massive facility on this a-class nature reserve and you'd fly in to the island and you'd see all the dredging they're doing and and i was going this is you know and then one of the environmental officers who said to me i'm not this is between you and me. The company is doing this because if they can drill or they can use, put this facility on this A-class nature reserve, they can go drill in the Arctic. They can go to any, if they can get authorization to do it here, they can do it anywhere. And um, so there was more for their resume. And, and they said they don't care about how much money they lose in this project as long as it allows them to do other things. So light bulbs were going off around environment and workers' rights and all this crazy stuff. But um I, and eventually I came back to Perth and I studied, um, or I, I said, um, I had uh, my last deferment on my 
entry to uni yeah. and I had the deferment in my hand there was actually a cycling coming <laughs> I was like, and uh, they and it said you can't defer anymore otherwise you have to go through this whole process and I thought F this I'm going back to study and I'm gonna I don't care what I'm gonna try and do what interests me and if I should land in a space I don't care about the money I've earned money yeah. it's not the most important thing in life and then I ended up going to uni I went to ECU and um, I uh, Allowed, and I also got a job in the public sector at the same time. Um, and even then, when I first got back, I wasn't really thinking too much about politics. But I was also seeing what was happening. I wasn't thinking about myself in politics, but I was, I was seeing what was going on at the time across Australia. And the Labor Party um, had gone through a massive thing with the Kevin Rudd issue. So was this like, uh, like mid two thousand? Yeah, well, ten thousand, like between when Rudd took in. Um, when he became prime minister and just before 2010 was just before the time I decided to come back to Perth. Okay. So he was axed at that, just before that election. Um, and in fact, I was in Victoria at the time. They sent me out to a really bad job. (laughs) Um, and I saw that happen and I saw the hung parliament in 2010 and I saw the greens being in a hung parliament with the labor party and put forward this, I never really, I did know about the sort of climate change, but I never thought that the package they were putting together would have such a significant impact, you know, across the world um, because we were, Australia at the time was pretty far ahead of everywhere else. But I ended up coming back and I learned a lot about that in my first year of uni, like a lot of things were going on in politics at the time and Tony Abbott was... You know, so did you study politics? Yeah, I did politics okay. and international relations and yeah. journalism. Um, because I wanted to do policy work, and I did, I did journalism because I hadn't written a, I had not written an essay <laughs> in like twelve years. Yeah, and okay. I, my grammar was terrible, and I yep. still have uh, anxiety issues around grammar. But uh, <laughs> like uh, when I write something, Talking but uh, to an English teacher, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, uh, so I I did journalism because it forced me to write, yes. and um, it helped me with what I did on the more sort of history side. But I did I did that because. Even when I was growing up, um, even though things were pretty shit at home um, sometimes and, you know, relationship breakdowns and parents and all that kind of stuff, um, I would always have a fascination with history and I would watch a lot of documentaries and I would read books about, like, different social movements and different leaders and um, and I'd always always have a fact or something that I'd tell one of my best mates, did you know this happened in, like, 1962 or something? And... um, one of my friends said, oh, you're like, this is before politics. Oh, you're, you know, you've got a lot of stories. <laughs> You'd be a great storyteller one day. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, Here we are. Yeah. <laughs> Here we are. Um, but uh, yeah, so being in uni and I thought, well, I'm going to volunteer somewhere. And I thought I might volunteer for like, because I grew up in social housing and witnessing the Tony Abbott on the rise and what he was proposing. And I knew what he, what he stood for. He stood for mass deregulation, uh, privatizing everything, um, you know, selling off the state assets, uh, uh, healthcare and education being the first things he wanted to attack. And he, he did. Um, and to me that, that meant people like me growing up would be in a situation where they would be at a real disadvantage to everyone else. And it's not just the rhetoric coming from the right being, oh, if you just pick yourself up of your bootstraps sort of nonsense. Um, it doesn't, life doesn't work like that. Life is, um, uh, 
for me, a social safety net is something that breaks cycles of poverty. And for them to put forward um, what they're proposing um, didn't seem fair to me. And I thought I'm going to, you know, my degree might get me um, into working in the housing sector so I could work in policy to help people or, or work in an organisation where I can help people firsthand. But then someone said to me, oh, have you ever thought about politics? Um, have you ever thought about um, getting involved or volunteering with a political party? And I was with my best friend, actually, and... Uh, and I never thought about it. And my background would lead me to probably the Labor Party. That, yeah. yeah. And that, so that's, that question's coming. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So yeah. I looked at it and I, I said to myself, I'd only get involved because obviously the refugee issues unfolding federally with Labor. Yeah. Okay. Um, I didn't think that was fair that those policies, I, I still don't think they're yes, fair. No, um, and so that weighed on my mind, um, I, that conscience of having people on an island and, you know, being incarcerated um, really bothered me. Uh, also, the fact um, having the sort of unfolding of uh, unraveling of, of Kevin Rudd, um, having the way that he was removed didn't sit well with me. Um, and then having a situation where, uh, you know, people realizing that politics was about, you know, they'd love to like quote people, you know, that's the thing that got me. They'd quote these inspirational leaders like <laughs> Kennedy and stuff, and <laughs> where you have it, but never follow through on actual massive changes. Yeah, yeah. Like Gough Whitlam, for example, um, try and put everything on the line. Don't worry about how long your term is, just do something that's meaningful. Obviously, they probably did worry, Goff probably yeah, yeah, did, yeah. But, but to do that, significant impact. And um, so when I was looking at the parties, I said, um, you know, party based in policy that's developed through, you know, facts and scientists and peer reviewed, and also a, a party that's run by the membership. And uh, it fell with the Greens. And for me, growing up, the Greens were the people that lived in Denmark. Yeah. Not, you know, my, my parent, I think my mum, even though like she's a perfect example of voting against your own interests, I'm pretty yeah. sure she probably voted conservative um, because of the fear politics. That, yeah. yeah. Um, yes. So, like, for me to join the Greens was something I'd tell my... I'd tell, what do you join the Greens for, you know? But, uh, yeah, so I joined the Greens and then a state election came up, uh, the 2013 state election. So I joined in 2010, early yeah. 11. And then the state election was coming up for 2013 and I ran, ran as a candidate in Mount Lawley. Yes. And that uh, took a lot of convincing like for me I had no aspirations to be a politician yeah zero <laughs> um my my um thing was about organizing and getting people involved in politics and the party was at a different stage then too for the Green WA and at that time um to do that uh I found that it was a very uh out there thing for me to do and it stressed me a lot um uh to get in for, like to get interviewed and all those kinds of things but and Mount Lawley was a marginal seat at the time so I, I had to sort of get my head around what it means to campaign and what it means to you know do all those kinds of things so I did that and then uh, I ran as a candidate at the end of that year at the uh, federal election for Stirling for the Greens and um, that was the year Scott Ludlam lost his seat but the okay. ballot box went missing yeah yeah and then we ran the I didn't run as a candidate in the 2014 senate runoff but I was an organizer and then after that, you know, someone said, oh, have you thought about running for Perth? <laughs> like, and I ran for Perth and we did really well. And we had no, like, run, smell of an oily rag sort of yeah, thing. Yeah, yeah, um, Run this campaign. We built this campaign out of nothing. We had a 5% swing. 
it was really inspirational actually for me to get a lot of young people involved in politics it was awesome and then um the state election came around and I got elected, so yeah. did the same thing again and uh, was elected to the Legislative Council. So. In 2017. Yeah. Yes. Sorry, that's a long... Like, no, no, it's It's great. a bit of a journey. That, that 2011 to 2017, a lot of... Like, it was layered. I had uni going on. I was working in the public sector, like, nearly full-time while doing three to four units a week. Yeah. Like, uh, a year, a semester, it was hard. And it's that's what a lot of people do now, so... Yeah. Well, I think I've kind of realized with a few of the guests we've had on that this format just is a bit more conducive to uh, understanding circumstances in a complex way as opposed to like a, a short sound bite. Um, so you did kind of mention that maybe uh, based on your background, labor would have made a bit more sense at some level. And we talked uh, a few weeks back to Jai Wilson, who I believe is a comrade of yours. Yes, he's great. <laughs> yeah. I got a lot of respect for Jai. Yeah, no, he's, he's amazing. Um, gave me a lot of his time and, he was kind of saying that he saw you guys being very similar in yeah. your like, ideological stance, but having a different opinion on tactics. So he kind of sees the Labour Party as a vehicle through which real change could occur because they're a party who uh, has and probably will again be the government of the country. <laughs> um, it seems maybe for the Greens that might be a bit further away. What, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> what's your rationale for going in the different direction? Yeah, I think uh, the rationale really comes back down to... Oh, it goes back to what I was saying before about when I was thinking about the parties and, you know, and obviously I'm, you know, there are a lot of, I've got a, I have a lot of respect and friends in the Labour Party movement and I understand where a lot of those people have come from and where, you know, working class and representing and I'm a member of a union still um, and how important the union movement is with everything. Um, where I stand with the Greens um, and why the Greens have been, I think, although born out of like an environmental movement with Bob Brown and, and what was happening back in the 80s with the yeah. nuclear disarmament movement with Joe Valentine and everything. Yes. Uh, what I really think uh, is that the Greens do serve a significant, like they do have a purpose in Australian politics. Yeah, the policies seem to be ahead of the the major parties, the older parties, but the policies put forward tend to be adopted in some way down the track. And I think that's a really important role for a political party to play. Like um, setting an agenda. Yeah, setting an agenda and, and, and pulling that into, like we've seen it recently with the New Start debate, you know, Rachel Seawitt, the senator, like she's been pushing that agenda for so long uh, and that goes back to fairness and, you know, getting, you know, putting that, and now that's something that's on the table. And also with the COVID pandemic, um, it, it's held like that argument um, has shined through because it's actually shown that there is a lot of inequality and unfairness in Australia and it's even getting worse. Yeah. And so like those policies are important and they are important to put on the agenda. So for me, like if the Labor Party adopt the policies, that's great. Yeah. You know, it's not for me it's not about like getting 
like 40 members of parliament like in or, or always winning seats and the politics of it all it's about changing the agenda and making getting a policy shift going on and you know in, in victoria is a good example we've won lower house seats we've won upper house seats and we managed to shift an agenda in that state as well um i you know they've got a pretty good renewable energy policy over there uh, like obviously everything can be better but it's it you know fighting those battles actually pushes politics in a direction and i think that's an important role for a party to play and that's why i think um, being a part of it has been important to me yeah well maybe we've i guess at a cultural level i can understand it um with what would you see your role being in a prospective uh mcgowan second term like what kind of agenda do you think you could be involved in setting in that context well i think um it goes to uh, one thing that i've learned from the first term uh since being elected in 2017 um you you see the influences of different industries and you see the the differences with how um, government interact um, and WA being a resource rich state I absolutely agree like you know I worked in the mining industry we need to work with different industries and things like that but I think a second term McGowan government um, and we see with the Liberal Party announcement today um, yeah. <laughs> I I see my role as being, you know, I introduced the climate bill. I pushed that, you know, it would have been, uh, you know, sometimes issues are what they are across the world. Climate has become a massive issue that we need to address. And I see the climate change issue as also uh, something that is a crossover between social justice as well as addressing inequalities. Because for me, the... um, You... The people who are pushing um, uh, not in climate inaction or inaction around climate change are the same people that are pushing the agenda which um, are disadvantaging um, yeah. poorer people. And so, like in the next, I would like to see our role in the next term, um, providing knock on wood that we can be returned, is being able to still fight those battles and yeah. still, like, you know, for, it really. Um, it's distressing for not only green supporters, but people across the community to see that a Labor government has actually gone backwards with social housing. Those issues need to still be talked about. And if they like, if I'm not there or the Greens aren't there, then they, it's less likely it's going to be talked about because yeah. like those people just get forgotten because they don't have a voice. So my role in the next parliament is to give those people a voice, a strong voice. And I think that's going to continue on from the first term. As far as the election goes, obviously it's, as we said, rapidly approaching. And we talked a little bit about the um, the climate. Well, we talked a lot about climate change. And originally that was going to be uh, the question I yeah. set to you now. <laughs> but um, I guess maybe let's broaden it a little bit. Um, climate change is a key focus of the campaign. What other uh, kind of key takeaways are there that might be getting kind of clouded over? Well, what's been clouded over is last year I was... I was working, we ran a rental campaign, renters' rights campaign in 2018 to 19. Um, that hasn't gone away. Yeah. And re- in, in WA, uh, what I learned in the boom bust era was when I sublet rooms, like I, I was in a share house, yeah. not far from here. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, when my housemates moved out, I took over the lease and I was subletting rooms. During that boom period in 2009, my rent went up like a hundred and something dollars a week. And there was a line of a hundred people trying to rent one room yeah. for me. And that wasn't fair. So that was something I took into 
the, this parliament and we ran a renters' rights campaign. And it looked like the Labor government was going to introduce legislation to address some of those issues within the rental um, market, which is good for landlords, it's good for renters, and it makes sense. It's what other states are doing. And that's what something I pushed to put on the agenda. And I think that's something that's been forgotten right now. We have a moratorium that's ending at the end of March and people's rents are going to go up, up to probably, I've heard through different sources, up to 20%. Mm. There's already rent bidding going on. So like people taking people aside on home opens going, if you just give me another 50 bucks, you can get the rental. And it's very, it's devastating. Like the housing affordability issue in Australia is devastating stating for young people and that's going to coincide with like the end of job keeper and yeah. some big changes at the it's a perfect yeah. storm and i've um i've i've door knocked like for example i door knocked someone the other week and she was a single parent with a couple of young kids in maylands mm. and she said to me that she uh, uh told her landlord that she could not afford she's on a disability pension and could not afford afford a rent increase and the and the landlord said too bad if you can't afford to pay the rent you're not we're not renewing your lease yeah. and so she told me that she's got nowhere to go and that means people are going to become homeless and that's going to compound that issue and i think we you know last year when covid um happened to keep to stimulate or what um the premier said to stimulate the economy and keep people in jobs they put forward more incentives for new home builds. Whereas like, I think at that time you could have kept the same people working in construction by just building new social houses. So yeah. we, we've gone backwards in that regard. And I think that's something that's been glazed over. And that's, you know, whether you're a parent who's got kids who have left home and now they're looking, asking to come home in their thirties because they have no rentals. Yeah. I think, you know, I'm just using that as an example, but it touches everyone. Yeah. Especially with a lot of people returning from overseas. Yeah. And one of your portfolios is housing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think uh, maybe let's just, I've got a list of your portfolios here. So we've talked about climate change. We've talked about housing. Uh, One of the other big ones on there i guess we could have a look at uh as it relates to maybe this podcast is the arts yes Uh, what are what are some of the ideas the greens have in that regard well i think covid uh, another issue covid has sort of exposed is the fact that you know a lot of people in arts are working contract jobs insecure work um, and there's been a bit of a double whammy because since the Liberal Party took over federally, their focus has not been on, you know, protecting the arts mm. and, uh, no. uh, and, <laughs> and artists and uh, musicians and, and, you know, all those things. And I think, uh, I think that we need to make sure that um, the art, like for, I know it's a federal issue, but I've also been vocal about the job keeper and the job seeker payments. Uh, I think when the uh, federal government put forward their proposal to raise job seeker or what was new start, um, to qualify for uh, for those things, you know, some a lot of people on contract they don't work over a twelve month contract or, yeah. or work for twelve months. So a lot of people that I know that work in the arts had lost their jobs and weren't eligible for that coverage. Yeah. So they were disproportionately impacted and pretty much the federal government said i don't care yeah and i think that's something that we need to really um talk about so as someone who's got the arts portfolio like i'm vocal about that on a federal issue because i still think regardless of being a state mp or federal mp we still need to call things out if there's injustice around it yeah and i think the state government needs to sort of also do more um and advocate become a strong advocate for the arts because at the end of the day 
to me arts is it's truth to power it exposes all the a lot of injustice it also is also really on the pulse with how our community is going and, and mm. traveling and i think allowing the federal government to get away with just gutting that our, our, our precious arts industry um will really negatively impact a lot of people going forward so I think we we hold our mining industry up there in high regard in WA, but our artists need to be up there as well. Yeah, well, I think that um, well, actually, before I ask this question, is there anything else election-wise you'd like to kind of get in here before we we move on to something else? Uh, I I think I alluded to before going back to that um, one of my the campaigns and, and working with different people. I I think having um, no matter what your background is, I think you should get involved in politics. Mm. Um, I think politicians and political parties uh, don't, um, they, for me growing up, if you're a councillor in the local government or if you're the local MP, you're that sort of authority on the hill and you listen to that authority and I, you put a lot of trust in those people. Um, state parliament right now, I think the average age from what I remember a couple of years ago is over 55. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like we need more young people in yes. politics. And, and I think it doesn't matter what your background is or your age or your experience. Um, you can bring something to the table and, you know, the battle of ideas um, can't just be won by the people who have the industry backing. It needs to be won by the people who have the ideas that actually matter and yeah. matter to other people. So getting involved in campaigns, running in campaigns, volunteering, I think is a positive thing, regardless of what political persuasion. Yeah. Just get out there and try and do it. Yep. Okay. Well, thank you very much. So on the subject of arts, um, obviously this podcast has kind of a predilection for movies and music and such is are there any movies that um I, you kind of said um speaking truth to power i know we've talked a bit about john carpenter films and <laughs> yes. such are there any standout examples for you uh okay so <laughs> i think jay i think uh with uh john carpenter films i've always loved john carpenter films yeah. i think uh, renting them out on vhs tape um, being scared of the covers, yes. uh, you know, as you do when you've got the horror section or whatever. Um, but I think they live growing up and watching Roddy Piper play the uh, sort of construction yeah. worker, <laughs> and then wearing the. It didn't. I didn't click that it was about Reagan's America at yes. the time. Yes. But I think that is a significant uh, cultural yeah. assessment of what was going on about consumerism. Um, Dawn of the Dead, George A. Mm. Romero, um, that film set in a shopping center um, about consumerism. <laughs> it's and so it's always, in hindsight, it's yeah, great. Yeah. It's so like, it, it, it says a lot about, you know, and I even, you know, on a, a cultural sort of um, light bulb moment, I remember moving to Perth and remembering that film and then going, okay, what happened to the soul of our community? And all of a sudden realizing that that soul was sort of sucked into the major shopping center yeah, down the yeah, road. Yeah. And, and I think that's leaving, you know, it's it's going back to what it sort of used to be. But I think that consumerism, so those films were really impactful on me. Another film that really um, impacted me was a film called The Thin Red Line. Oh, okay. by Terence Malick yes. um, it's a war film that goes for like three hours and yeah, some people, no, he's iconic for that, isn't yeah, he? <laughs> some people love it and some people hate it um, but uh, it got me thinking about James Jones who wrote the Thin Red Line book uh, that the film's based off is based on letters to his brother yeah. and he talks a lot about um, his mindset at the time uh, being in the Guadalcanal and and it wasn't so much about referring to battles, but just 
just talking about um, how what's important to you and in life. And I think that film shines through. There's a lot of different layered stories like Terrence Malick does in, yeah. his, um, in his films, but that was an, a really important film to, to me growing up it's always stuck with me um yeah there's a few terence malick ones yeah. i've got on the list like is, did he do tree of life is yeah he did him? do tree of life yeah, yeah. Uh, he did like days of heaven and yes. like a lot of stuff from the 70s and um yeah and like i think his films are uh like some of them i I've, i struggle with but some of them do have i like the idea of having that sort of sense you know it's almost like you're witnessing characters who you know sometimes you pause and you think about things um more in depth yourself yeah. and i think he's a master at capturing that and also capturing light and the environment around you yeah. to let that speak for itself yeah and i think that really relates true to life and i think that's important yeah and going back to with what you said about uh, the carpenter movies and i i think uh what you kind of mentioned with not like watching it as maybe a teenager not kind of getting the political message straight away and maybe even as an adult i mean it you don't need to get that to enjoy the film i think it's really important for kind of uh creating like metaphors and symbols that we can uh, used to understand things that can be very complicated like thinking of the thing yeah. as this uh like kind of moralless mindless consuming we don't identify it as necessarily an evil thing it just mm. is and i found that a really helpful metaphor for understanding like the market and yeah. kind of the, the motivation of accumulation not necessarily having a morality to it yeah absolutely i think that film uh that's like i guess that's my favorite john carpenter film. Yeah, yeah, yeah uh, uh yeah, loving the poster as well um yeah so the that film um was I just that idea of having this group of people trying to work out exactly what's going on uh, their environments like lock them in mm. so they're having to face realities yeah. going through and trust issues and and all of these things come out and it also reminded me of when I worked away in work crews you know and different characters and, and people conspiring and, yeah. and all those kinds of things and also the setting in the Cold War like yeah. it's also sort of this metaphor this sort of yeah, yeah. like this, not knowing who the, yeah, the, the, the hidden commie could be yeah the real the yeah. real yeah the real enemy and, yeah. and in that sort of early 80s sort of setting was uh, really significant I you know at the time I, and reading about the background of the thing with like how it was panned you know he yeah. put so much effort into building and it's now it I was think, an ET yeah. it was an ET and, and to see the pictures of it opening night the thing with all the things that go with that but um, for it to be panned in that way and then for it to sort of really impact John Carpenter yeah, and then for him to have to rebuild himself out of that I think is also something worth looking into if you're yeah, a, a yeah. bit of a horror fan. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's, it's got an amazing history and yeah. um, as we kind of alluded to, uh, it was the original iteration was very much a Cold War story. And, yes. Um, watching the Carpenter version, I think, um, well, I don't know. On the face of it, I, th I think it is hard to kind of see a political message in it, but mm. knowing his movies like They Live and kind of having a bit of an idea on his beliefs, I did see it as kind of a critique of uh, like immoral excess. But it was originally about the, the hidden enemy in your ranks and yeah. the potential for kind of a communist infiltration so. yes absolutely yeah. Yeah. yeah and when you when I mean, you don't when you just watch it when you're younger you just oh well, this is a pretty scary film yeah, um, yeah. Um, but yeah that's also the other thing Alien for example yes. like 
the workers on the sh- on the spaceship who are just used as cannon fodder. Yes. Yeah. You know, they're, they're Especially being, the two, the, the lowest ones who just get sent to do all the, the horrible shit. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they, and they realize like later on, like, I don't know if you haven't watched it. If it's no, I have. It. I've watched yeah. all of them. Um, yeah. yeah. So like alien, like they um, realize that the company's just, okay, we just need to get this asset back to the earth so we can use it as yeah. a weapon. Um, and, but it doesn't matter. These workers will work at the, and what I love about that film, these people are just basically construction workers yes. who are put in a situation with this alien entity and they've had to confront all these fears and to realize that they're just being used like an employer would use. Yes. And, you know, you can see that happening today, like with Amazon. I was in America last year, mm. early last year, just before COVID. Yeah, yeah. Good um, time to get out. Uh, so in January of last year, and I was up in Seattle and I would see posters on telephone poles and it would be calling out Amazon, like the way that they've influenced their community, like screwing their workers, um, you know, rent, rents going off the charts, not being able to afford to live there anymore, all the things. And then I also volunteered and um, I also went to a Bernie Sanders campaign Office, oh wow! Yeah, um, and seeing how that unfolded, and when I chat to people, and uh, like I, I, took, I, I spoke to this young guy, and he uh, he lived in a house, a share house with four other people, and only four of them had um, four of them didn't have health insurance, hmm. and he said we're not we all come from middle class families, yeah. we can't afford health insurance, yeah. um, we can't you know we got these huge uni debts exactly what Bernie talks about yes. uh, and that is something um, I think ties into what we were talking about today earlier about you know is that that's a choice that our country can make yeah you know do we want that or do yeah. we want something better something a little bit better maybe. Yeah, yeah so yeah. and I, th- I th- and I do really think that um, what's coming out of this time and all of the upheaval and everything um, people are drawing their attentions back to what's important to them in life um, values are important and things that directly affect people it's gone beyond just getting in front of people and winning them over with political yeah. rhetoric it's actually about tangible outcomes yeah and as we kind of said before I think we'll have to wrap up in a second okay. but, <laughs> um, as we were talking about before we started recording I'm um, I think people on the left in Australia it's kind of it can be easy for maybe uh people more in the center or the right to dismiss them as being hysterical like things are pretty good here like you know like we're not like that we're not like america but it seems like there's a clear pattern of like america rippling out uh both kind of in their more imperial context but also to kind of their uh their their nephew countries like us um, who yes things might be pretty good here now compared to them but it's uh, things change and we don't want to lose what we have yeah absolutely and i think that um I, I don't think people see it as clearly these days as being this left versus right issue, although there is the politics around it. But like when you look at what's going on with the with the federal government, this JobKeeper thing, all the COVID issues and everything like that, you realise that people just want conviction in politics. Yeah. And I think if you have conviction in politics and what you believe in, yeah. you know, some people would argue that the rights agenda, what they're trying to do to our social safety net is extreme. Yeah. The left, compared to that, wanting to just protect that, I don't think it's an extreme thing. Yeah. And I'm not just talking about the left. I'm talking about everyone that goes, actually, Medicare is a good thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even conservatives. Why would we want to just sell it off to the private or privatize it? So that's an example that I think uh, we just can't keep drifting into this abyss where um, people just stop caring about what actually an elected representative is supposed to do for people. And that's actually to protect the community. Yeah. 
I think that's a great place to finish. Thank you very much for joining me, Tim. This has been lovely. And best of luck in, uh, is it March 13? Yeah, March 13. Yeah. Pre-polls open uh, February 24, though. Yeah, so. I think I'm getting mine in the mail. So, <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll do my bit. Okay. Cool. See you, Tim. Okay, thank you.